This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn um, to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter 2. Maybe you are here and you have your Bible with you, but um, it's a little bit unfamiliar to you. Uh, it's, a big, it's a big book, so feel free just to go to the table of contents, look up Luke, and turn uh, to the appropriate page number there. Well, this morning we're going to be hearing a word from God through a, a familiar text that is often um, too familiar, we take it for granted, we read over it and read past it, and also um, misunderstood. Uh, one of the dangers of the way that we celebrate Christmas is that uh, in its best, at its best, we tend to over-sentimentalize it to a degree that's not real and true with what we find revealed in God's Word, and at its worst, um, it's a holiday where uh, people whose lives show no fruit at all of being saved, no fruit at all of being in Christ or being Christian, join families and friends and come to uh, Christmas Eve services. And we, um, I, I pray it's unintentionally, sort of affirm uh, a salvation in them that absolutely is not there. And we get excited about the numbers that show up um, for services around that, but they don't mean anything they don't mean anything because the next week's just the same and the week after and the week after. So I am grateful to God. I praise God that we're getting to look at this text now uh, at a time that's not surrounded by all of the sentimentality that we typically bring to um, the Christmas time and then to the Christmas texts. What we're going to look at this morning is the birth of Jesus as it was foretold by the angel Gabriel. Let's pick up Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, and I'm just going to start out by reading the first seven verses, and I've kind of outlined this passage for us under three headings um, that deals with what we find when God comes. The birth of Jesus was nothing less than God coming to earth, God coming to earth. To live the life and live within the limitations of the creation and created beings that he'd established. Right out of the gate here, we're going to see that when God comes, God reveals his faithfulness. He reveals his faithfulness. Let's look at this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, 
the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now let's look at this because it is incredibly good news for you and for me this morning that when God breaks into His created world confined by time and space, He does so, among other things, in a way that reveals His faithfulness. Let me ask you this morning, where are you needing to see God's faithfulness on display in your life? Another way to ask that is, where are you in a season of waiting, of waiting for God to give you discernment, for God to unleash power in your life, for God to make Him known in some way, Himself known in some way to you, for God to direct your path, for God to supply something that you desperately need in those days. Now, verses 1 through 3 are simply Luke's way of explaining why it was that Mary and Joseph who were from Nazareth, were in Bethlehem at the time of the birth of Jesus. So he sets out this historical background that helps us understand why they would have traveled, especially in the later season of Mary's pregnancy, to Bethlehem. And I know, having had a wife that was pregnant three times, that the later seasons of pregnancy are not very fun. Right? Not a lot of people signing up to do gymnastics. People, I sound like our crazy culture. Not a lot of women signing up to do gymnastics uh, in the later parts of their pregnancies. I remember when our firstborn, uh, JC, was not coming when I thought she should come, which was just nearing the due date. I felt like we were winners and that uh, she should come before the due date. And one afternoon, I told Sharon, they say that walking, a little moderate exercise, will induce labor. Let's give it a whirl. So I loaded up Sharon and our dog at that time, and we went outside of the town where I was pastoring to some land that one of the church members owned, and I was free to go drive around on and shoot on and run on and do whatever. Um, Had lots of roads, and and we got out there and got out, and uh, I was walking, both Sharon and the dog hoping that um, it would induce labor. It did not, but it induced Sharon's anger at one point. (laughs) And she found a comfortable place to sit down and said, I will not move from here. Go get the truck and come get me. The baby will come when the baby comes. And that is what happened, right? But this this was not an easy journey. And there's nowhere in the text that we see that they had a donkey that Mary rode on. Right? They make this journey up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Look at verse 4. Joseph goes in response to this declaration that citizens within and people, conquered people groups within the Roman Empire, have to register in their city of origin, goes up from Galilee, and it's literally up, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David. The city of David was often and most usually the phrase used to refer to Jerusalem. 
but at least locally it must have been used to refer to his actual city of birth where his line comes from, which is Bethlehem. But Luke, just in case people don't understand, says, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David. In other words, in one sense, Joseph was an ordinary blue-collar carpenter. Yet he was an ordinary blue-collar carpenter who was part of a royal line, descended from King David. And part of what we see here is God's providential ordering of human events for His redemptive purposes. If you go back and you look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you see that it was prophesied that God in His Spirit had spoken through the prophet Micah that the Savior, the long-awaited Savior, Redeemer of Israel and all who would place their faith in Him would be born in Bethlehem, a town of no worldly significance. And God reveals this to Micah some 800 years before it happens. God is not ever in a hurry. God is not ever in a hurry. Just because He's waiting to do something in your life, because He's waiting to answer some continually spoken prayer, does not mean He's not hearing. And it does not mean that He's not working for your good and toward the answer of that prayer in His name and for His glory. 800 years God was working toward this event that's happening at this time in the history of the world, in this place, and through these people. He goes to Bethlehem with Mary, who he's engaged to, who is very pregnant. And verse 6 says, while they were there, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, it seems apparent that they'd actually been there a little while. They'd been in Bethlehem for a little while. So this idea of sort of a, a midnight arrival on a donkey and, you know, Joseph lifts Mary off and drops her in a stable with a bunch of animals and out pops Jesus. And he comes out wearing a halo, a crown. This is foolishness. And there's a history to it which none of you would be very interested in, but it dates back to a writing in the second century that was a fictional, fable-esque writing about the birth of Jesus. They'd been in Bethlehem. They'd been there among family and friends. And verse 6 says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now we'll deal with this in just a minute. But Luke has 24 chapters, over a thousand verses. And in a unique, um, highly skilled simplicity that Luke writes with, he devotes two simple verses to the birth of Jesus. And part of what Luke is wanting us to understand here is that this is an ordinary birth. 
of, from a human standpoint, an ordinary baby in the midst of an extraordinary incarnational act that God is doing summarizes with remarkable simplicity in only two verses the birth of Jesus as he does later in the book the crucifixion and death of Jesus in such simplicity but I want us to think of verse 6 in this issue of the time came it's pregnant with significance if you remember the apostle Paul writing Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 he says that when the fullness of time had come In human history, God sent His Son, Savior, Redeemer, as a sacrifice for those being redeemed. In other words, God was working throughout human history to bring the course of human history to the perfect time, at the perfect place, under the perfect circumstances for the birth of our Savior and King. It wasn't happen chance. It wasn't just that it was Mary's time. The time came. The fullness of time came while this young couple was in Bethlehem from a human standpoint simply obeying the decree of the authorities in their day. Now verse 7, let's deal with this issue of the end. If you're reading in the NIV or the CSB, uh, you will see this morning that they say... um, Guest room. Guest room. That's a better translation. ESV footnotes it down there. Guest room. But if you look in Luke, in chapter 10, you don't have to look there now, but you can write it out there. You can go look now. 10 verse 34, as Luke is um, uh, chronicling Jesus, telling of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's two different Greek words used. The Greek word used in chapter 10, verse 34 for in is the Greek word that is always used for commercials in, commercial ends. You and I see this in, and we immediately attach something to the front of it in our minds, the holiday in, the Fairfield in. Some of you know this, but this is not at all what's going on here. There's a different Greek word here that can mean in, extremely rarely, but is typically an everyday verbiage used to mean the guest room. This is what's going on here. The Middle Eastern culture today as then knows how to show favor and honor and respect to guests. This was Joseph's hometown. Joseph was one who was descended from the line of David. They would have had no problem finding a place to stay. They were welcomed into this home, most assuredly a family. And most homes in Bethlehem, and you can see them uh, even today as they're built on this, this slope, when you enter, they have down here as you walk in a lower level, a basic, simple entry level. And right to the right often are stairs going up, or to the left, stairs going up to A simple floor where the entire family lived, ate, drank, slept. Can you imagine the horror? The horror of your whole family living in one room. But that's where the family lived. And often the floor was slightly tilted so that it was easier to wash and to sweep things down onto the lower level where the animals were brought in at night. 
and taken care of. And most often at the base of that second level, right before it drops off to the lower first level, they dug out, they carved out oval-shaped troughs, mangers, in the stone, in the ground, where the animals, when they needed to, could stand up, walk up here, and simply eat. This is what's going on in this story. There was no better, no more comfortable place to lay a newborn baby than in one of those carved-out mangers filled with straw or hay. Not out in a stable. And why is he there? Because there's no place for him in the guest room. Often in these homes, uh, on the very end of them, there would be a guest room or sometimes up on the roof. We see pictures of this throughout Scripture. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, when he's preparing the disciples for the next day, and they're having the Last Supper, and he's washing their feet. He's in a guest room. Same Greek word is here, of a home. So this, this idea that Joseph and Mary come into town, as many others would have been doing, back to their hometown, and everybody's saying, we don't have any space for you, we don't have any space for you, and they go out into some kind of barn thing, is ridiculous. It's absurd. It's not historically accurate at all. And it's important that we understand this to understand the significance of what's happening here. God, in the birth of His Son, in His coming to earth, is, among other things, revealing His unshakable, trustworthy faithfulness. That God does what God says He's going to do. And He does it in the way He says He will do it. We can trust Him. You, this morning, at the very point of your struggle and your desperation, can trust Him, should trust Him, must trust Him. God reveals His faithfulness, but God also redeems in grace when He comes. He redeems in grace. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. All right, there's, there's no real drama in chapter 2 until we get to verse 8 and following. You've got, from a human standpoint, 
the normal birth of a normal little baby in a household where the women would have been assisting and caring for Mary at this time, laid in the safest, most stable container they had to rest. And then word gets out. First to the heavenly hosts. And what's amazing is the angels don't come to declare this to the governors, the rulers, and the priests. The angel doesn't come to declare this initially to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. The angel, and then later some of his buddies, come to shepherds in a field working the night shift, doing what they did day in and day out, comes to those considered unclean and near the very bottom of the social scale in their day. It is to them God is pleased to declare this first announcement of the birth of the Messiah. He comes in an ordinary way at an ordinary day to ordinary people. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord, verse 9, appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. God lights up the night. He illuminates it on this first Christmas. And they're filled with fear. Literally, a, a great fear comes over them. You know how many of us today live just in great fear? And we have reason to be outside of the redeeming beauty and power and grace of Jesus Christ. Watch the news if you dare. This world is a fearful place to live. It's a fearful place now to go to the store, to walk down sidewalks in certain neighborhoods, to go to sporting events. We fear all kinds of things in our own lives, in our family, the communities where we live, in our nation, in our world. Fear has a grip on us. I've been listening to people debate in fear the possibility, however great or small, of Putin using tactical nuclear weapons to establish his purposes in Ukraine and what will or will not be the response of the United States if and when that happens. They're in great fear here because something from another dimension, another place in space and time, this fear where God's power is unhindered and made known fully has broken into their world. And it's a little unsettling. It's a little unsettling. If you got up tonight to go to the restroom and an angel met you there, would you not be unsettled? You got up needing a drink of water, went to the kitchen, and an angel said, here's a glass, let's talk. I'll bring you news. You'd probably drop the glass. Right? And then the angel says to them what we see again and again throughout Scripture. Fear 
not. For, not fear not because you as a sinful, rebellious human being don't have a legitimate reason to stand in fear before God, but fear not because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the people here initially would have meant Israel. And then Luke and the rest of the gospel lets us know God doesn't mean only Israel. God means that this great news is coming first to Israel and then beyond Israel to all of his creation. For unto you all, for unto you all, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Hear those titles, Savior, Christ, Lord, the Anointed One, the One we've been looking for, the One that can fix your messes, the One that reaches down and pulls you up out of. The muck and the mire that your own decisions and rebelliousness creates. He's been born. He's come. He is among you. We need to be able, as followers of Jesus, to say to those around us who are unchurched and don't know the beauty and the power of the gospel, we need to say to them with gentleness and concern, but boldness and clarity, that there is no way to escape the legitimate fear of this world without the discovery and the experience of the gospel. It is the gospel here that the angels declare as having the power to drive out fear. Do you know the gospel in that way? Do you know the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that drives fear out of your life? Maybe you're shaken for a moment, but you center yourself on the power of the gospel and there's a uniqueness there. Not only to save you and redeem you, but to sanctify you, to grow you and transform you, and to push out the fears of being left, of being lost, of losing someone or something, of having harm come. The angel goes on and says, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and living in a manger. This is a common practice. And it's still a common practice among the poor who don't have fancy little baby clothes. They didn't make it to Baby Gap. Or they went there and their card was declined. To use basic, regular, everyday strips of cloth. And women will neatly, tightly, and carefully wrap a baby in those. And he'll be lying in a manger in the house right? In the house. This is the picture. This is part of what we see if you, if you go back and you think about Judges 11 and Jephthah, Jephthah there where he's going off to war. Remember? He, he makes that hideous declaration of God where he says, God, if you'll give us victory when I come back, I'll sacrifice the first thing that runs out of my house. It was an idiotic commitment to God that he was not asked to make and never should have made. Having made it, it was an idiotic commitment he never should have kept. He should have fallen on his face before God and simply asked forgiveness. But it never occurred to him that out of that door from the first level, the first thing he would see likely arriving early in the morning run out would be one of his children, his firstborn daughter. Why? 
because that's where the animal stayed. The animals came out first. What Jephthah was saying there was whatever animal comes out first, I'll sacrifice it to you. No matter how valuable it is to us, I will give it to you, Lord. Verse 13, and suddenly, suddenly, immediately, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased or on whom his favor rests. This is a picture of grace. This is a picture of the redeeming grace of God following him and coming with him when he comes. It's important that we understand this because we don't have peace on earth, do we? No. We don't have peace in our relationships. We don't have peace in our communities. We don't have peace in our country, and we don't have peace in our world, and we haven't had. What is Luke saying? What were the angels announcing here? They were first and foremost talking about peace between man and God. Peace between sinful, rebellious, war-making, idolatrous human beings All of us who want to make much of ourselves, we want to go our own way, we want to make our own decisions, we want ourselves to be glorified. But the birth of Jesus is the announcement that peace is available to you by the grace of God because we are in our natural state not at peace with God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 is a great single verse summary of this. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God tells us in Romans 1, He's made Himself known. And we, in our unrighteousness, in our sinfulness, suppress Him. We suppress the truth. We want to go our own way. There is not naturally peace. There's hostility between a holy and loving God toward a creation that is rebellious and at war with Him, whose effects of our sin are detrimental to all of His creation. And there's a hostility in the hearts of human beings outside of the redeeming grace of God toward God, toward His um, audacity at being God. And the angels say, In Jesus, peace has come for those on whom His favor rests. Verse 15, the angels went away from them into heaven. And there's an immediacy to this, just like they're coming. Immediately they came, immediately they left. They went back into heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, Yeah, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. I like the language there. Let's go see this thing. You could just see one of them. Maybe they were younger shepherds. They'd have been like, bro, can you believe that just happened? Bro, let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem, bro. And bro, they'd have gone. But they're not, here, the, the key to what they're going to do is in the last part of the verse. They're going to see this thing, this baby be born. whoop de doo right? They're born all the time. No one's thrilled about yours particularly except you and your family. Because they're born, it's like when a kid walks, you're like, woohoo, 
you know, unless it's yours. Then you find out later that was a stunning mistake because now you have to keep up with them. But here's the thing. They're going to see this thing that has happened, this birth, which the Lord has made known to us. There was no reason for these burly, blue-collar, night-shift men to leave their work and leave their task and travel back into Bethlehem to see a normal baby born in a normal way were it not for the fact that the Lord had made something extraordinary known to them. And he made known to them at a time when they were at work like usual. See, this is what God does in our lives. This is what God does in your life. We've said it over and over. Sometimes you're driving. Sometimes you're in the shower. Sometimes you're going about the menial tasks at home that you have to do. Sometimes you're at work. Sometimes you're on a walk. Sometimes you're in worship. And you're here. And it's, a, it's an ordinary Sunday. And you're not really into it that much. You're just here because this is where you are. And God breaks into your world. Because in His sovereignty, He's chosen to. And to speak to you. This is what we rest on. This is what we wait on. It's the power of God to come. And when he does, he reveals his faithfulness. He redeems in grace. And he, and he alone receives all worship. He and he alone receives all worship. Look at verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Probably took a little while. They had to knock on some doors. Hey, is this the one you're talking about? No, he's dressed too nice. Is this the one you're talking about? Nope. He's in the guest room. This little dude's going to be laying in the manger. And they find him. And look at the staggering contrast between the splendor of the angelic host and the simplicity of a baby laying in a manger, a normal baby. Look at verse 17. And when they saw it, this sight of this baby in a manger, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. When you go back to verse 17, they see this thing that had been told them. This is the remarkable thing that God had spoken to them through the angels and what he said they're seeing now to be real and true, that God is here and God is at work. That the word of God is driving the events of human history. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Had wondered at the working of God in this way, in this place. And of course they would. Jesus was a normal baby. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 says about the coming Messiah that he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was an ordinary baby and became an ordinary man apart 
from the powerful, extraordinary incarnation. But from a human standpoint, nothing wilder. Now, how different is that from our culture of church celebrity today? From the church saying, man, let's gather a crowd. Let's really do a big Sunday. Let's get this professional athlete to come. Let's get this uh, celebrity who says they, they've now um, come to faith in Christ. Let's get them to come and speak, and, and everybody will come. That's foolishness. It's absurdity. It denies the power of God in God's Word, by God's will. J. Hudson Taylor, some of you will be familiar with. He founded the China Inland Mission or China, yeah, Inland Mission. Still there today by a different name. But he spent most of his life growing up in England. And if you read a biography of Hudson Taylor, you, you may get frustrated at how much of the biography is dedicated to his, his pre-China years, even though he spent 50 years as a missionary to the interior of China. But it was those preparatory years that taught Hudson Taylor to trust God and formed Taylor in the beauty and the power of the gospel. While he was there, he saw over 20 missions formed in the inland of China because all the missionaries just stayed on the coast at that time, mid-late 1800s. Saw almost 900 missionaries join in there, over 700 Chinese workers for the gospel trained. Baptized an estimated 35,000 Chinese believers that were the result of his own gospel witness and ministry. He's standing in a large Presbyterian church on the platform years later in Melbourne, Australia, being introduced by the moderator at this large, influential, affluent Presbyterian church. And the moderator's going on and on about the greatness of Taylor. And then introduces him as our illustrious guest. Hudson comes out and stands silent just for a moment and then says, Dear friends, I am but a little servant of an illustrious master. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who you have often and will often hear me speak of, in 1926 accepted uh, his first pastorate in Sandfields. Sandfields Mission was the name of it in Aberavon, Wales. Martin Lloyd-Jones, having walked away from a skyrocketing career in medicine within uh, the royal palace and royal family of England, known in the high societies of London in response to the call to preach, was heading out where his heart's desire was to a really, really rough place in Wales with rough working-class people who were not interested in the gospel. Alistair Begg, in a paper he wrote on this, said, when you look at this, there is no earthly reason why this young, eminently successful, and with a great future in front of him physician, and his wife-to-be, who was also a physician, should actually set aside all of the prospect that was before them, all of the prestige and security of London, to go to what was a very difficult and daunting prospect in Aberavon, Wales. But they did. And on the morning of November 28, 1926, the church secretary came to the house to pick up a young Martin Lloyd-Jones, who'd only preached a couple of dozen times at this point, to take him to the church 
to preach his first sermon there. They made small talk on the way, and Lloyd-Jones said, I hope you don't expect anything great of me today. And as they pulled up, Lloyd-Jones saw this huge sign that had been made announcing him there as the speaker that morning with his status that he had in London. And he looked over, having never met this man before this morning, and said, I don't like that. Don't do it again. Lloyd-Jones knew that he was but a little servant of an illustrious master. Mary treasured these things. She meditated on them in her heart. The shepherds returned because we come in and we go out. They came in and saw this great thing and then they returned. But they returned differently. They returned glorifying and praising God. Not Mary, not Joseph, not the city of David, not the angels who brought the word, but God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. God is as faithful this morning in your life as He showed Himself to be that unique day in world history. He is as intent on redeeming people out of lostness by His grace today as He was then. And He is as worthy of all worship this morning as He was then and forever will be. Where are you this morning with the God who comes? Let me ask you to stand with me in the presence of God as I pray for us. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. Thank you.